Amen. Fitting prayer indeed, and we are here this morning to receive his word as that, his word. Well, most of you have probably seen what is going on in the the news around the world, uh, particularly in Israel, um, with uh, war going on. And uh, I've, I've not tuned into too many channels or seen um, too many reports yet, but enough to see the devastation that is going on in the Palestinian terrorist group, Hamas, uh, in the Gaza Strip attacking Israel, acting mercilessly, suicide bombers, air missile attacks, stabbings in the street, kidnappings, uh, leaving thousands in critical condition, hundreds dead, and that's just of yesterday. And it was um, sobering for me to even uh, hear about that, uh, to receive an email that was forwarded along about how to pray for Israel um, and uh, even the church that is there as well. And it burdened me because, uh, you know, here I am yesterday thinking of, you know, kids' soccer games and watching football and those things. And, man, it is, is quite a different uh, part of the world that we live in. And um, so we need to pray for the nation of Israel um, under a partial hardening as many of you know, the scriptures teach, Romans 11, as a nation, they're still longing for another Messiah, have rejected Jesus as Messiah, but God's people nonetheless, and there is a plan for national Israel to receive him. When Jesus talks about the end times and how there will be wars and rumors of wars, and yet this will still not be the end, and uh, we live in that, we see that, and we think about that, and we know that wars and these other things are meant to point the people of God to God for help, uh, it, it being a form of discipline. But um, looking to uh, the things that we can be praying for, and you pray for the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, and um, pray for the peace that can come to uh, the people of Israel, not just um, <clears throat> because peace comes from God, but peace comes specifically from the Prince of Peace, Jesus. And so I'm going to pray now, and we'll get into the book of Ruth. God, thank you for this morning. We pray right now sober prayers, uh, humbled by the fact that there is war going on, and there are believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, Messianic Jews, and others who are hiding, who are hurt, who have been affected by these terrorist attacks. And Lord, we are reminded that we need to remember those who are mistreated as with them. And so we remember them now in prayer, and we pray for your protection over your church. We pray for the nation of Israel to receive and realize their sin and their hardening of heart, and they would receive Jesus as Messiah. They would turn individually, nationally, or whatever you're doing through this hard time, would it be to the end that you are glorified and Peace is found in the one who will reign one day in ultimate peace when you return. Um, from shore to shore, it will be uh, peace that you bring. And so, God, we pray that uh, these uh, devastating times would bring glory to you in some way through these means that are discouraging and scary. We pray that, Lord, many would turn to you and find rest and find safety and security most importantly, with you eternally. We pray for Israel now, in your name. Amen. Well, this morning, we are turning to the book of Ruth, 
Again, last week we started chapters 1 and 2. This week we finished chapters 3 and 4. So as we turn our attention back there, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to find the book of Ruth early on there. Um, After the first five, you'll find it, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And this morning we're turning to the book of Ruth, which is a short story of how the Lord redeems us from ruin and he guides us with grace under the wings of his providence. But whenever the topic of providence is brought up, typically there is something difficult first. There is something hard first. I was looking into a book briefly by a guy named Stephen Charnock, a Puritan, and he wrote this book in Divine Providence. And the opening words here are helpful and relate even to what we have just prayed about and to the book of Ruth. Providence, he says, is mysterious because God's ways are above our human methods. Dark providences are often a smoldering groundwork laid for some excellent design that God is about to reveal. So when we're understanding this teaching in the scriptures and specifically from Ruth about what providence is, Oftentimes, we're talking about the sovereignty of God as it applies to his people in hard times and what he is doing to get us through it, and that there is always some purpose that is beyond what we would do in it that he has through it. And so we can trust God for this, even though a dark providence, and it reminds me again of what the English poet, the Anglican hymn writer, William Cooper penned. I'll read these words again because they're worth reciting as we did last week. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. That him relates well to this definition, and it relates well to the book of Ruth and in our own lives. When will God make all these things plain? Sometimes we see it in retrospect. Looking back, we say hindsight is twenty-twenty. Essentially what we're saying with that phrase is a nod to the providence of God. And ultimately, we know that this isn't just happenstance and, oh, the way that things worked out, uh, that was convenient, or these things uh, coincided in this uh, way to, I guess, somehow work out in the end uh, in some vague notion of giving people hope. No, we have a specific hope for those who are under God's wings, his wings of providence, that he is doing all things for our good and his glory. And the book of Ruth depicts that. The book of Ruth really helps us grasp that. The book of Ruth gives us reflections that we're doing this as we work through these four chapters to read, pause, reflect, and discover the hope of redemption. 
no matter what you're going through, no matter how difficult, no matter how hard, no matter how much loss, no matter how hopeless you feel, God has a plan, and his plan is one of redemption. And that plan of redemption is one of his son, that is Jesus. The book of Ruth points to Jesus. We need to see this because this will help all of us this morning. What I'm going to do before I jump back into chapter 3 and carry on with our exposition of this book is to do a quick summary, uh, high uh, flying over chapters 1 and 2 and do that with me now as you look back at chapter 1, and I'll give you just the review uh, here is what we covered last week, and you can always go back and listen to that sermon if you have not accessed it and go online. But the book of Ruth was in that frowning providence, that dark providence of the days of the judges. This is what a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It just seems like mayhem breaking out everywhere. Nobody really caring to live according to the law of God and everyone coming up with his own law. You could say back then they were living with this kind of sense of, I'll do what is my truth. Right? And you're thinking like, wait, hold on, didn't that just come out recently, the whole my truth thing? Uh, no, this has been forever. People want to live with no king. They want to be king, and that's what was going on in the land of God in Judah, in Israel. So there was a famine that showed that God was disapproving of their disobedience, and it was a dark time. Well, the book of Ruth zooms in on a family led by a man named Elimelech. Elimelech is the man with his wife, Naomi. Elimelech and Naomi had two sons, Malon and Kilion. They were from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to the country of Moab, so they traveled there to find food. They remained there for a bit. But Elimelech, the husband, died. Now the two sons took Moabite wives when they were in Moab, which they should not have, but they did. And for 10 years, uh, they had... Um, their wives, Orpah and Ruth, and seemed to be without children. After those 10 years, both the husbands died. The sons died. So now it's Naomi and her two daughters-in-law who are Moabite women. Now, Naomi is certainly sad, bereaved, and this is great loss, great pain, but the Lord is already shining through the dark times. Verse 6 she finds out that the Lord had visited his people and given them food, so she returns. On her way back to Jerusalem, on her way back to Judah, to southern Israel, she tells her two daughters-in-law, please remain, I won't be able to help you, I won't be able to give you rest, so life is hard, but there is hope. She was struggling with that. She was struggling to find hope. She was looking to her means to be able to bring hope, but she didn't see that right in front of her, there was something that God was doing. Not only had he provided bread back at home, but he also provided Ruth, who was right by her side. Ruth clung to her. Orpah did go back to Moab. Ruth stayed with her and went back to Judah. And Ruth said these famous words in chapter 1, verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go I will go, where you lodge I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is a radical conversion. 
from a worldly worship and pagan worship, being a Moabite, having Chemosh and other gods that demanded infant sacrifice and other things that were very ungodly, and they were always at war with Israel during the time of the judges, and she forsook all of those ways, and she clung to Naomi, her mother-in-law, who had just gone through loss. She herself had just gone through loss, and she doesn't just say, I'm going to be a faithful friend, friends forever, right, whatever, but she says, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. So don't get a mistake here that they just had a close uh, affection. Ruth means friend, and so that's what this is. It's just like she was clinging to her because she was codependent or something. No, this was something much bigger. She was converted, and she was determined to go with her back. As she returns back, all the women see Naomi. She doesn't look good. Uh, These 10 years have not been good to her, Um, and so they have um, recognized how bitter she looks, and she is struggling to have hope. Chapter 2 the light comes in fuller. It turns up. There's a worthy man. Now, here is another character that steps into the scene when they return. His name is Boaz. Ruth gets to work out in the field, says, Naomi, I will work for you. She goes out there to glean. She's very unassuming. She's not entitled. She's a hard worker. She takes initiative, and God brings her to a specific part of the field that you could have gone into. When you leave the town, the city, and you go out of Bethlehem, go out of the gates and go out into the field, it is massive. You could go acres and acres and acres. And she went to the specific spot where it was Boaz part of the field. Why this mattered was because Boaz is actually someone who could fulfill the role of a kinsman redeemer. And he is somebody who actually could provide rest for Ruth And so what you see there is they meet in the field. Chapter 2, verse 3 is, this is a verse that is beautiful with providence because it says she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. This was something that God was orchestrating, not Ruth. Ruth was just doing the next right thing. That's what we do is just do the next right thing. I don't know where I'm going to work. I don't know if I should marry this person. I don't know what I should do about this. Do the next right thing. That's all Ruth was doing. And God is just making everything work out. He brings her to the exact right spot, the exact right place, the exact right person, and Boaz showers her with favor. He hears about her testimony, her repentance, her confession, her determination to cling to Naomi and to love her, and he sees a worthy woman. He himself is a worthy man. When a worthy man sees a worthy woman, there's attraction there. There's attraction there because God is at the center of that, and that's a right attraction. And so he does all of these things to show favor to her, giving her all kinds of of, of wheat and and barley to take back to Naomi, who is at the house, still in mourning. And chapter 2, verse 12 is really, the I'd say, the key verse. The Lord, he says, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Naomi finds out, whoa, where did you get all this food? I thought you were just going to get scraps and have it in your pocket. Maybe that was all we would have. But you've got this massive amount, and you've been fed already when you were out today working. Where did you go? And she tells her it was a man named Boaz. And Naomi puts it together. This is one of our closest redeemers. There's hope. There's, there's light. Yeah, there's hurt still, but there's hope. 
and you can move forward. And, and that's what happens in chapter 3, is the plan moves forward, the plan of redemption, the plan of God's hands, God's wings scooping up his people, caring for them in just the right way, protecting them from all the things that could have gone wrong to Ruth in the field, and he directs it forward in this beautiful story. Let's pick up now uh, where we're at in chapter 3. Chapter 3, the next reflection I want to give to you is in this chapter is love is sought. Let's read the first few verses. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. What we're learning about here in this whole chapter is really about a community of love. A community of love. And that love must be sought. If you look at each section of this chapter, you see that love is being sought from one person to another. It like goes around and it just connects everybody together. Naomi seeks rest for Ruth. So she will not be a widow uh, that is without the hope of remarriage and without the hope of having a child, without the hope of really going into the future. She seeks rest for her. In the next section, you'll see that Ruth, in her obedience to her mother-in-law, seeks what is best for Naomi. And then you see Boaz in a minute and how he seeks what is best for both of them. So let's just break it down. I know this is in your notes, so you can begin to fill these out. But first of all, Naomi uh, wants to do what is best for Ruth. What is best for Ruth? Keep in mind, this is the day when the judges ruled, and people were doing what is right in their own eyes. The law of God was not something that was really adhered to or held to. It was not someone who uh, really was uh, marked out as particularly godly during the time of the judges. A lot of ungodliness was going on. But you have Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. In this chapter, showing love to one another, not seeking their own interests, but the interests of others before them, like Philippians 2, 4 says. So Naomi wants what is best. What she saw was an opportunity. She had said this in chapter 2, verse 20, he's one of our redeemers. And so she sees this as a good thing for her daughter uh, to stay near Boaz. Don't go into another field. Go back to him. He has clearly made it, made it shown that he is going to be an extension of God's grace to our family by the way that he can provide for us. And he has provided for us incredibly already. So now, this is where it gets a little interesting, and there's a little bit of head scratching for this part, because what does it look like is going on here? She says to her daughter, hey, take a bath, get clean, we've traveled a long way, you've been working hard, you stinky. <laughs> so she said, clean up, get as clean as you can, uh, wash everything, anoint yourself, put on the perfume that we do have, which would probably not be much, but whatever they had, it would be worth something. Put on your cloak. So this would be some way of putting on what is your best and, uh, and, and wear that. Um, and, and then she says to her to, to do something. She says, go dress up, clean up, dress up, go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. 
And she, she says to find him in the middle of the night when he is asleep, fast asleep, hardworking guy, long days. This is the time to gather. And so it is a payday. So he's working hard. He's there at night out in the middle of the fields, not in the city, out apart from where everybody else is. And she tells her to go and to uncover his feet in the middle of the night all alone. This is sketchy. I mean, you, you just think like, kind of like, what is going on here? And, and, and it really is a head scratcher. You think, I mean, this isn't the day when the judges rule. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Let me tell you, I know exactly how it's going to happen next. You know, it's going to be a sex scene. This is going to be some kind of fornication. This is going to go that direction. It's obvious. So whoever had the idea first, they're going to act on it. But it's interesting that she tells her, when you go there and when he wakes up, uh, do, uh, and, and she says that at the end of verse 4, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. It's almost kind of like Naomi says, he'll lead, he'll lead out. And so you go, okay, let's see what's going to then happen. I, I think it is uh, helpful also to kind of get a picture of uh, what it kind of looks like. This is a picture today of a threshing floor, um, and a threshing floor is a, a, a stone ground where it's very hard, like a uh, uh, very, not, uh, not sand, but packed, and so they would bring all that they had collected and cut from the field when it is the right time to gather it. Um, uh, the bushels would be thrown down on the ground, uh, and then a threshing sled or some big heavy stone uh, with the help of a, a, a mule or an ox would be rolled around over it and crushed it so that all the stuff that's not needful for the making of bread and other things um, would separate from the grain and the heavy stuff that is what you want and then at night, when the evening would come and, and the winds would blow, uh, then you would go to winnow, take your winnowing fork, and, and take the, all the chaff and throw it up into the air. And all the heavy stuff, the grain and heads of grain, would fall to the ground, and that's what you want to collect. Well, everything that is useless blows away with the wind, just kind of chaff that blows away, like Psalm 1 talks about. And, and so this is the threshing process, and so this is where he would be at the head of this big mound um, that he is going to be threshing and working, uh, working in this place. Staying out by the payday, basically. This is his check. This is uh, where all the goods are, and he is out there, in a way, protecting it, but also working, uh, working hard. And you find that what, Na what Ruth does is she goes and does everything that Naomi told her to do. Verse 6 went to the threshing floor, did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, just like Naomi thought it would happen. Then she came softly, tiptoeing, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Like, oh my goodness. Anybody else, like, loosening their collar right now? Like, Ugh. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is part scripted, part unscripted. Naomi tells her to do all of these things up until this point, but Ruth gets to this point, and, and she doesn't maybe know what to say when he wakes up. So I was waiting for him to do something. I woke him up, you know, his feet got cold, so now he should wake up and be like, hi, uh, you know, uh, I'm just laying here next to you. I know no one else is around, middle of the night, um, under the stars, feels a little romantic, maybe even seductive, 
And this would, in a fleshly minds person, be an opportunity for some kind of sexual advance. But what do we know of Boaz? He's a worthy man. What do we know of Ruth? She's a worthy woman. So there is not an occasion for the flesh here because he has restraint. And she's been obeying everything Naomi said up until this point. And she, Ruth, knows why she is back in Judah. It is not to find a hunk and be like, that's the guy. He's going to bring in the big bucks. You know, No, she is back there because your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Ruth mostly wants God to scoop her up and to cover her, provide for her, protect her. She sees Boaz as a means through which God can provide. So she's not coming to him for some uh, illicitous relationship or something that would be fleshly or unrighteous, ungodly. She's coming to him because this is the plan that my mother-in-law told me to do. I'm carrying out the plan. And she's going through these motions, and then she starts to go on her own. When he says, who are you? She says, I am Ruth, your servant. She's humble. Again, spread your wings over your servant or, or your, your outer cloak. Cover me. I'm uncovered in life. Would you cover me? For you are a redeemer. Her words are very clear and to the point. She seeks for him to play the role of a redeemer. A redeemer is someone who buys back something, a property, a person, a slave, from being sold or being lost. And a redeemer is someone who can make the purchase that is adequate to get it back. That's what a redeemer does. It's someone who buys back. So when she says, for you are a redeemer, she's saying, I'm lost. I'm out. I need help. We need mercy. We're depending entirely on you. This kind of reminds me of a time where um, when I was proposing to Kathy... I know I'm the male in this situation, not the female, but, uh, but when I was trying to think of what I would say uh, when I was proposing to Kathy, it was um, a perfect weekend, or at least it was for me because my schedule was open. Kathy had a cold, but that wasn't a big deal. Uh, and I was like, I had the ring, so I was like, it's the weekend. Uh, and I'm like, hey, do you want to go to like the beach or something? And she said, well, I'm not feeling super well, but yeah, sure, we can. You know, I was kind of, okay, cool, all right. Um, she seemed willing enough. Uh, and so we went to Santa Barbara, and we had a good time walking along the coast and um, doing beach things and had lunch together. And then in the evening, we um, uh, kind of went back to where the harbor was and just had a nice spot on the beach. We were just talking and um, just enjoying each other's company. Well, um, the sun had been setting over the masts and sailboats, and the moon came up, and I was kind of, oh, God, thanks for taking care of the romantic lighting. <laughs> this is kind of nice. I didn't really plan that part out. Um, but, uh, but I was noticing uh, that, you know, Kathy was just kind of sniffling a little bit, and I said, uh, you know, I was trying to think, how do I say this? How do I say it? Even in the moment, I just didn't have the script. So I was like, man, I just want to take care of you. And she was like, aw. I was like, I want to take care of you the rest of your life. And I, and I said it in the form of a question, can I take care of you the rest of your life? And she was like, yeah, aw. You know, I don't think she quite understood exactly what I was saying, but I thought it was clear enough. So I reached behind her and grabbed the ring box out of my bag and slipped it into her hands that were kind of folded behind her head. And she felt it and then realized what it was and pulled it around. I was like, oh, oh what, right now, what? And I was like, yeah, that's what I was, that's what I was, she understood then uh, what I was asking uh, of her, and, uh, and, and she said no, and I got married to somebody else, and it's been really rough, no, I'm just kidding, um, <laughs> uh, she, she said yes, she was super, 
super just blessed, and we had a wonderful night, and, uh, you know, God just worked out the script of what to say in the moment, and I've been caring for her ever since, and sickness and in health, and God has made it really clear what my purpose is, is to care for my wife, and so in a similar way, the Lord is just crafting their love story and bringing together of the two of them, and in this way, it's, it's a unique she's going to him. And this isn't a text to go out and say, well, all you ladies need to get a little bit more busy and go tell your, the guy that you want, kind of like, I'm ready, you know, like, let's do this thing. You know, it's like, no, this is a few really unique customs and factors that are going on here um, that Boaz wouldn't have asked. He's older than her. There's a few times where he refers to her as daughter, um, as signifying younger than him, uh, potentially the age of if he did have kids. Um, so he could be potentially 50 or so. She could be in the upper uh, 20s or so if she had um, been married and lived 10 years uh, already in Moab. So you're kind of doing some math there going, okay, well, so in, in the culture, it would have been odd for an older man like this to, to propose to her, especially if she had just gone through mourning and, and loss and she's bereaved. And so essentially what Naomi is doing is she's playing according to the rules of the customs. And she's saying, you need to make it clear to him that you're done mourning the loss of Malon, your husband. And you need to let him know that you're ready for him to propose to you in a sense. So uh, who proposes? That's kind of both. But Ruth is just going along with what Naomi's telling her to do. And this is uh, a, a beautiful metaphor. Spread your wings over your servant. This is what she had heard him say back in chapter 2, verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So when she says, would you spread your wings over me? What she's saying is, would you, one, marry me and help me? But most importantly, would you be an extension of what God is doing to care for my family who is in need? She has her eyes on the Lord all the way through. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. And you'll only see that further as you see now Boaz's response. Boaz wants what is best for Ruth and Naomi. In your notes there. Look at verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know you are a worthy woman. Yes. And now it is true that I am a redeemer yet. Huh? Curveball? There is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her saying, these measures, six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. What you see here is Boaz wanting what is best for both Ruth and Naomi. Everyone, selfless acts of love for one another. 
First thing is first. He did not wake up and go, wow, this is a dream. You know, I've got a great opportunity for the flesh. No, he is someone who in the dark of night, under the stars, her smelling good, her being young, him having desires, could have looked at this as an opportunity for his flesh. But what does he do? The first thing that he says after is trying to identify who it is, he says, may you be blessed by the Lord. He has a way of bringing the Lord up right away. Before the flesh could get out in front and want anything, the Lord goes in front of him and does what he wants, ultimately. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. He says, you, you have been kind, and you've been kind again. You've not gone after young men, other men you could have gone after. And he says, do not be afraid. I will do all that you have asked for me. And you kind of think, oh, this is great. And he even recognizes her as a worthy woman, the same word that's used of him in chapter 2, verse 1, a worthy man. So worthy man, meet worthy woman. This is so perfect, and yet, verse 12, now it is true that I am a redeemer. He's agreeing with all of this, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Oh, no. Everyone reading this narrative kind of stops and goes, wait, wait, wait. No, this can't. Like, this, who's this guy? Is he, is he any good? Wait, wait, hold on. What are you talking about? I mean, what Boaz, think about all the things Boaz could have done at this time, right? He could have gone, well, I know that there's somebody else who's closer, and he would be first in line to redeem the hand of Ruth in marriage. But he's kind of a scoundrel. You know, that guy, you know, uh, he's not her type. I've met her. She wouldn't like him. You know, oh, you know what? They're just not very compatible. Like their Enneagram didn't match up, you know. Or, you know, he, he could have gone through so many things in his head of saying like, oh, you know, this, you know, let's just kind of not tell anybody about this other guy. He wouldn't care anyway. I know what he's going to say. He could have gone through all these justifications in his head to just get what he wanted, this young, beautiful woman who is clearly a godly convert. And yet he does what is right. He does what is right. It may be at night, but this man lives as if it is broad daylight with everybody watching. And God, right there. Anything is just these two in the threshing floor? No, God is right there. A worthy man and a worthy woman is God right in the middle. And so you don't think of ways that you could kind of work out something for your flesh to get what you want. No, you work out what in the fear of the Lord, what he would want. That's exactly what he does. He's willing to say, almost kind of like, yes, I love you and I can play that role. He didn't really say, I love you. And I was getting serious. But, uh, but he wants to fulfill that role. But he says, I'm going to have restraint over what I want right now and where the seems like God is leading. And I'm going to actually step back and yield to God's plan. And I have someone who's closer than me. He has first rights. And you're just like, no. Like, who cares about that guy? This is so good. God's doing all this. Just kind of push him aside. No, not a time to compromise. He's a righteous man. And he makes sure that Ruth is going to be cared of cared for. He sends her back full, and he tells her, this will turn out well in the morning, whether it's me or the other guy. And this is another thing to reflect on in the next few verses. Right is first. Chapter 4, now Boaz had gone up to the gate. He sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, this other guy, the closer one of whom Boaz had spoken, he came by, almost kind of like God's just timing us all up. Just, here's the guy. Are you going to do it, Boaz? He goes, yep. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, buddy, old pal, uh, sit down here. 
And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, this is Boaz speaking to the closer kinsman, Naomi, who has come back from the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Uh, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. When he says buy it, this parcel of land, this is the act a redeemer would, he would buy it back so it would not be lost and out of the family. So this is the, the theme of redemption being carried out. And he says, if you will redeem it, redeem it, buy it back. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Everyone's like, oh, the no-name guy? What? Verse 5, then Boaz said, oh, one other thing. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. I wonder if that changes something. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And everyone's like, oh, that was a close call. Verse 7, now this was the custom in former times. There's a lot of things going on that are customs of this culture in this day. Uh, in, in Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when re the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you've got the elders there in the gate, you have everybody there who has gone in and out of the city, and they're in the gate gathered, seeing what's going on here. He says, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, bought back to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day you see here you see here what boaz does and what makes him a worthy man is that he cares about what is right first of all he is not someone who is self-seeking he is not someone who gets caught up in the moment he is not someone who is looking for something that maybe he can do something and say what well, made sense in my eyes to do this no he looks at god and says what is right in your eyes that's what I'm going to do. And so he walks forward with such great faith, right? This could have turned out differently. He sits down in the gate. He sees no-name redeemer walk by, and he goes, hey, buddy, come here, sit down. Um, and it's kind of like, okay, how's this going to turn out? And then he gets 10 elders to make sure that this isn't just kind of like a quick little, like, hey, we, we slapped hands, you know, we were good. We you know, hugged it out, like, we got it taken care of. Wait, what'd you do? No, he got 10 elders to be there. And he talked about it with them, conversed with them, explained the situation, pointed it out, mentioned to him uh, what it would involve, not just the, the land, but also the hand for the land and Ruth in marriage. And for whatever reason, the, the nearer redeemer, I'll give him a little bit of credit. Maybe he was married. Okay, it doesn't say that here. Uh, but for whatever reason, he chose to not. Hey, the land, yes, he wanted. The hand of Ruth, no, he didn't. Maybe it was because she was Moabite. And he was like, hmm. That's going to change things for me. People are going to look at me different. 
if I marry a Moabite. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I, I can't take, it, take my right of redemption. So, no-name redeemer, hands him a sandal. Here's one shoe, whatever good that is. <laughs> and, uh, there's a custom here. This is most likely, it doesn't explain, but it's most likely saying, wh- where uh, I would tread that would be mine is now yours. The land that you would walk, that you would have, uh, you know, this is yours and not mine. I'm giving this over to you. Everyone sees it. The witnesses are all there. Do you see how many witnesses are observing what's going on? This is beautiful. This is how you walk in righteousness. You don't hide. You don't have your ways that are crafty that you keep in the dark. You're willing for everybody to hear and to see what it is that you're going to do. Have you ever had a plan that you wanted to work out, but you thought for a split second, maybe I should seek counsel from somebody before I do this? And then that split second goes by and you nah, and you just go and do your own thing. Well, a lot of times what we do is we want something. It's kind of a big thing, or maybe it's something that we have a second thought about. And that second thought could be the Holy Spirit or your conscience working to tell you, you should bring somebody else in on this. And when you bring that up to other people, what's the risk? The risk is you might not get what you want. They might tell you, hey, yeah, but have you considered this or how it would affect that? Have you checked your heart, hon? You know, or whatever it might be. And you're kind of like, oh, I knew you would ask that question. No, but if I had to, I mean, okay, fine, I'll wait. You know, or we have this like naggy heart. But this is so beautiful. See, this example of godliness. This man sees this woman. Sure, it's very clear. It's all teed up to see like, don't you want her? This would be great. But he is so open-handed about it. And he's like, you all see what's going on here. I'm willing to do this. He's first in line. This, so you know, this is how this would work out. He bails, and everybody goes, praise God, this worked out great. Oh, do you guys see God's hand in all this? When you choose to just walk according to his ways, oh, that's so good, so hard, so good, in the light, walking right. Everything is just before the Lord and before others, and you don't mind. The witnesses see it. That's a beautiful thing. It marches forward. So right is first. I'll hit these next two pretty quickly because they roll together and it is the close of the book. Look at verse 11. Faith is blessed. Listen to the blessings now of all this chorus of people who are gathered and see what's happening on. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. They had a lot of kids who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily. That word, worthily, is the same word that is used of both Boaz and Ruth, a worthy woman, a worthy man. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and renowned and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, it was like chapter 1, verse 19. Remember when the women talked to Naomi before? Naomi said, I've gone out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Remember that? Well, these women have a different thing to say now, because God is not done with Naomi's bitterness, not done with with Naomi's emptiness, not done with that frowning providence. He's got the smile behind it. 
414, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, not bitter, but blessing. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. There's hope. It's been realized. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, that is Ruth's child, and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, caring for him in intimate ways, cherishing him. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name and saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Just pause there for a second and see, when you walk in God's ways, he takes care of everything you need. Even the times where you're like, this is going to be difficult, though, for me to do what God is telling me to do. I want to do this, but instead I'm going to trust the Lord that he will work out whatever is good for me. Every time you sin, you have a temptation to believe that the thing that you're going after is better for you than that which you should be doing. And when you choose to walk in righteousness and you go, man, it would feel good to have that. It would be nice to say that. It would be great to have this. But I'm trusting the Lord. I'm walking forward in righteousness. And God shows you the blessing of obedience. Do you, do you plan obedience? Do you think about the obedience that is before you, that you are going to walk in? Don't be so reactive in your Christian faith, but look to ways that you can honor God. And as you walk in obedience, choosing the Lord's will over your own, then you'll understand what these witnesses are saying. May the Lord be blessed. May you be blessed. May this all work out for you and for God. When you are under God's wings, close to God, doing what God wants you to do, trusting in him entirely, seeking him as your refuge and no other thing as your refuge, what ends up happening is your good is taken care of. Your good will always be taken care of, and God will be glorified. He will always be glorified. Blessed be the Lord. He's not left you without. Those words were used in chapter 1. You've been left without. Now, he has not left you without. The story is not done. You who need hope today, if you're in a hopeless place, your story's not done. You feel left without. That's not the end have you been redeemed? Have you been restored? Do you have life in Jesus Christ? If you do, you understand what it's like to be safe under his wings. He has the plan. He's working it out. You need to trust. There is a smile behind the frown that it appears on the front. The clouds are full, thick with mercy. They name him Obed. Obed means servant. And he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. David's got to be mentioned again, and this is our last point to end on. Faith is blessed. Christ is king. It says this in verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. You get to an ending like this, and you're kind of like, yeah, why did you like rattle off all those names? It kind of ended a little anticlimactically. I had a girl in my eighth grade Bible class that I was teaching about nine years ago tell me, yeah, I don't understand why there's so many genealogies in the Bible. I mean, 
even I could have thought of something better to write than that. You know, I was like, wow, that's pretty brazen. Um, but that's where her mind is. You know, like, okay, there's, there's a point. Why a list of names? Is this a waste of space in God's inspired word? Or is this purposeful? Why mention David's name twice? Why do a double up on it? Why end this way? Was this just about Ruth? Was this just about Naomi getting a child, getting a husband and delivering them? Whew, that was close. Or is this something so much bigger? This is God's kindness, his loving kindness to this family. And what would happen was it have implications throughout eternity. It would hit King David. It would hit Jesus. And it would hit the kingdom of God. This is when you, when you read this genealogy, you sit in the seat of this catapult and it just launches you through redemptive history and you just fly over all these generations and names and after little baby is born to a Moabite woman, an unworthy woman, yet God is faithful and loving and she gets to be a part of this royal family that brings about a king, King David. King David was given a really big promise. That's why we call it the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. And David is promised that someone would come from his seed, someone would come from his line that would be a king. And guess what this king would be? He would be an eternal king. His domain would extend forever. He would have all eternity under his feet. And so David has this promise that there is one coming from my line who will be an eternal king and he will have all power. I mean, this is a step back to Genesis 3 when it says that a seed of the woman will come and reverse the curse that has been put on all creation. And everybody's been watching from one generation to another. Is it this kid? Is it this kid? Is it this family? Is it this time? Is it this age? And you have something like this, this little book of Ruth that you think is like, it's a woman's book. My wife jokingly said, oh, you're going to Ruth? One for the ladies. And I was kind of like, pfft. It's funny. You guys can laugh. Uh, but I was like, no, this is so much bigger than just us and our problems or this family and their issues. God is doing huge things. And you might think, oh, but you don't know my life. It's a mess. And I would say, oh, I don't know. But I know God has a habit of working with his people under his wings in ways that you have no clue what he is doing. And it is good. It is grand. It's huge. And it's all for his glory. You can trust him. So the book of Ruth ends with this list of names helping you see that you can trust him. You can trust him. He's a great redeemer. He can take you from every kind of ruin and he can catapult you into all that is good and beautiful about his great plan, his plan of redemption, his plan for a redeemer. So we see this theme of redemption throughout the book, and we think, oh, it's, it's going to be a Goel, a Hebrew a kinsman redeemer. Really, all that is is a little tiny foretaste of this ultimate redeemer who is to come through David. And that's the redeemer you need to know. When I was in Israel, I went to this place called Dominus Flavit, and I think it's Latin or something, Roman, no, I don't know, for uh, the Lord wept. And this is a building, a church. Some of you might have been there. Um, and this is from the inside looking out, so not, not super um, picturesque. But if you're on it, on the outside, this would be more of like what you're looking at. Um, across the Kidron Valley and at the Temple Mount where Jerusalem sits and the city. Jesus, in Matthew 23, was at this place 
and he wept here. He wept for a particular reason. I shared this a little bit at the end of last week, but you need to catch this to see how our Redeemer thinks about our redemption being scooped up by him. He said these words over Jerusalem at the end of his life before he was captured, before he was taken and crucified. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As I begin, these are the things that we're praying for national Israel, that they would receive him as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. His name is the only name through which you can have redemption of sin and be saved. Israel needs to know this. You need to know this. You need to be certain of this. And when you know this and you've come to Christ and you've trusted in him entirely, what you do is you come right up to him and he just scoops you up and he says, I've got you covered. You'll be fine. It will be hard, but I am stronger. My wingspan's covered this. You're little. Trust me. And we just say, okay. And we tuck in. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this book of Ruth. A short book, but in no way is touching just one little point of history. In the biggest way, is touching all points of history. Oh, what an example that you can take someone so unworthy, a situation that seems so insignificant, and you can, through your guiding providence, your hand, guide your people to bring about something so glorious, so wonderful, and so filled with hope. Or this should cause all of us to look up, take our eyes off of our circumstances, to stop leaning on our own strength and our own abilities to deliver ourselves and to just trust in one deliverer, one restorer of life, one redeemer, Jesus, Messiah, the chosen one who came in the perfect time, sent by you, Father, to do the work of redemption, of buying us back. Out of the slave market of sin, which we ran into, and you've brought us into a place of such purity and righteousness and pleasure by your side. You are good. Nearness to you is our good. Nearness to Christ is our good. May we stay close under your wings, trusting you no matter what happens. And see to it, Lord, that no one is outside of your wingspan this morning. Call them to you. In your name we pray. Amen.